feels like forever that I talk to you guys. Yeah, it's been a while. It's like we we don't even know how to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, behind the scenes, of course, we uh, have been on a bit of a break because Josh and I were on our various trips, and we uh, we tried to you know fill in with some extra episodes before we left um, so that there wouldn't be a big gap. But uh, yeah, we actually haven't sat down to record in two weeks now, something like that, Alvaro, whenever we did the last one. A little more now. Yeah, it's been roughly three weeks, I think. It's been like a month for me. Yeah. My heart breaks for you guys. You all alone in beautiful Europe for three weeks. That must have been terrible. (laughs) Whatever, you live there. Uh, but anyway, we did have some, uh, obviously, a bunch of news came out while we were away, or um, even just this week was was quite a big one for news. And uh, Yeah, we chose the right week to come back. Seriously, I mean, like, th- there's a bunch of announcements, and it's not even Photokina yet. Um, but a bunch of them are in the Sony realm, so I'm going to toss this one to you folks and just sort of make snarky comments from the uh, peanut gallery. <laughs> <laughs> we'll flip rolls in about 10 minutes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, so where are where where are we at here? We had a big announcement Monday, Monday, July 11th, on the availability and the ship date and the pricing of the new 70 to 200 millimeter GM lens. So everybody in the world was thinking it was going to be about like 3,500 to 4,000 US dollars. I don't know where we got those numbers from, but it's only going to be $2,600 only. Yeah. Uh, US dollars. I meant to ask you guys, why did why were you expecting it to be that expensive? I think this might have been a, a master marketing move by Sony. Like maybe, yeah. they, maybe they inflated the price like on purpose just so that it would appear cheaper eventually maybe it was going to be that way and then they just changed it well they all, i think part of it was because of the current pricing of the canon and nikon lenses plus the current pricing of the 70 to 200 millimeter f2.8 that they have for the a mount right and i think that everybody kind of thought there'd be more technology in it so it'd be worth more and blah 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 yeah back then the the main argument was that the a mount 70 to 200 f 2.8 lens was already pretty expensive so the e mount being a newer lens for a more modern mount uh, it it stood to reason that it, it would be even more expensive so that's that was kind of the reference and i think it even manages to undercut the a mount lens in price a little bit doesn't it it does yeah yeah i mean i'm not sure just want people to buy this thing <laughs> Yeah, just let me let me grab twenty six hundred dollars out of my out of my pocket. No and, problem, back pocket. Yeah, <laughs> I think I left my wallet in the other pants though. But, <laughs> but it puts the eighty five millimeter at eighteen hundred dollars, the twenty four to seventy millimeter at twenty two hundred U S dollars, and then the seventy to two hundred at twenty six hundred U S dollars. So like it's within the realm for professional photographers, plain and simple. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's a lot of money for somebody who's not a working professional. Uh, but if you're if you're if you're a photographer who are who's shooting every day, you know, events, weddings, portrait sessions and so on, you can definitely Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to invest in 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 these lenses. Yeah, pr- price won't be the factor, right? Right. And there's a psychological factor that is very important, which is that each and every lens is still cheaper than the current flexib body, which is the A7R2. So that's 32 mm-hmm. uh 3200 US dollars, I think. Uh it's been at that price ever since it launched almost a year ago and it, it hasn't really dropped in price since then and I don't think it ever will. I mean until until a new model is released that is. No, A7R3 is probably like 2 weeks away. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> probably <weeks> from <laughs> probably from here to September somewhere somewhere in that uh range. 
But the point is that, yeah, the, the lenses, while being expensive, are still priced below the camera body, which is, it seems to be uh, sort of like a tipping point for many people that it hurts to pay more for a lens than, it, than, than what you paid for the camera. Uh, and that way, this is still comfortably below that threshold. So I think it's a great move. Right, which makes really no sense at all because it's all about the lens, but whatever. Moving on. There were there were a couple other announcements they had back in February, right? They were talking about a professional level lighting system uh, that they were going to announce. And that also came out, pricing and availability. So there's this new radio commander and this radio receiver, which I'm not even sure still how it works. But anyway, the commander's 350 US dollars and the receiver's 200 US dollars. So Yeah, that seems quite on the expensive side for what it yeah. offers. Like I mean comparable systems from other other brands are like the commander retails for like $70 and the receivers is like 50 Jeez. bucks each. So plus the flashes aren't cheap by any stretch. Yeah, exactly. The the lighting system that Sony is trying to sell it has some benefits being a first party brand, you know, but but I'm not convinced that it's competitive with third party uh, lighting solutions from from other brands. And the same thing happens with Canon and Nikon, by the way. Nikon I don't think even has a first party lighting system. I think Canon is the only one that does. And and it's the same thing basically. There are third party flashes and commanders and receivers and they're all a lot cheaper than than Canon's own offerings. So this is sort of like a repeat of how it played out in the DSLR DSLR uh, market. And it makes sense. I mean, if Sony can can squeeze a higher margin, they're going to go for it. Uh, it's unfortunate because for people who would like to own a really nice Sony uh, lighting system, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost a pretty penny, but you have options and that's never bad. So I'm not really worried about it. For the record, Nikon does actually have its own flash system. Uh, they've, they've got quite a number of speed lights and a little wireless commander unit as well. Um, it's probably not as well developed as Canon's system because that's just a very thorough one, but uh, just for the sake of accuracy. Are you sure about that? Because I remember I, I read about that. Uh, I think it was on the photographer, so please take this with a, with a grain of salt. But I, that, I read that claim that Nikon doesn't even have one. So if, if you know for sure that it does, then I stand corrected by. But I mean, if we're talking about if we're talking about speed lights, they have several models. You can look at them on their website. No, I, I meant the commander and receiver and that kind of thing. It does have a commander. I'm just looking here for uh, receiver units because that might be what they're referring to. There's definitely a commander. It's called like their speed light commander SB whatever. Right. Anyway, not that important. I, I wanted to point out to circle back for for a second to the seventy to two hundred GM lens. This is the first time that we've seen actual pictures taken by somebody who doesn't work for Sony, uh, taken from that lens. I mean, because back when it was announced a few months ago, it was just a prototype, and they didn't let anyone touch them. So right. this is the first time we've seen what the lens is actually capable of. And any thoughts early on? Well, I, for one, I'm, uh, I think it's impressive, but it's not really mind-blowing. Like, it's comparable to the Canon lens that's a few years old already. I don't think it's significantly better than that lens. But it's really hard because the Canon lens is almost perfect. I mean, for this type of focal range and for this optical construction, Canon has, I think, the lens to beat. And it remains to be seen if the GM lens is actually better or not. But even if it was better, I don't think it's going to be by a significant margin. So just to 
but just to put it out there that it is it seems it is up to the expectations that it, it generated so well i can tell you this much i'm way more excited about it now with that current price tag than what i anticipated that price tag to be at so yeah my list just keeps getting bigger and you know what else at was added to that list just the same day on monday uh, <laughs> a 50 millimeter f14 can we believe this so we've got three 50 millimeter lenses now from sony two in the last like three months and the newest one is an f14 lens which is oddly branded like it's a zeiss lens not a gm lens and everybody's losing their mind over the fact that this f14 50 millimeter lens is not a gm lens it must not be as good as the rest of the gm lenses right right this is a very very controversial uh lens announcement because it kind of throws in all the arguments that people had been making up basically to to kind of say that the GM lenses are the best ones and then the Sony size are not as good and then there's the Sony period uh, lenses. And and that's just a bunch of nonsense. I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, Sony makes all of these lenses. Right. The, the Sony size ones, they just so happen to collaborate with size. Uh, but the collaboration is like 90% Sony and 10% size. So it's not like... The Sony size lenses are not even are not made by Sony. That's an awesome ten percent, hey. Yeah, yeah. You had to put your badge on every single lens ever sold. Ten percent done. <laughs> <laughs> but really though, like it's throwing off everybody. Yeah. Yeah. There there was never any official confirmation that the GM lenses were supposed to be better than the Sony size or that they were even competing against each other. That's what just that's something that people came up with because it sort of made sense with the information we had at the time. But now this lens is kind of proving uh, those those people to be wrong because, I, well, I, and I was one of those people. I was concerned because uh, the earliest F1.4 lens for the system, which was the 35 millimeter lens, uh, is a Sony size. And I was worried that Sony would release a GM version of that lens because that would mean that their partnership with size was kind of in danger. Like they were perhaps maybe turning uh, against each other. Right. And everybody thought that. Yeah. And it made sense to think that at the time. Like there was a lot of, there were news articles written on it. Yeah. Right? But this, this lens certainly puts those fears to rest as far as I'm concerned. Right. There was a slide in, like when they announced the GM lenses, there was a slide in that slideshow. Now I was looking around to see if I could find that, but I couldn't. Anyway, maybe we'll get it into the show notes, but I swear I saw a slide and you talked about this too, where yeah. the Sony Zeiss lenses were, you know, they were based or focused on sharpness and contrast. And then the GM lenses were sharpness and bokeh, right. which again, like you had said, is complete nonsense. Like what the heck does that even mean? Um, but that like, they're not, they're not pitted against or one isn't better than the other is all I'm trying to say. Right. There's a, there's a technical difference between both series of lenses, like the, the things that size lenses can use and GM lenses cannot use include the T-star coating that size is famous for that eliminates glare and improves contrast across the entire frame. Uh, this is a, a coating that size has been using for a really long time. And it's, it's part of the famous character that people attribute to those lenses. And then there's the fact that size creates their own optical designs, like the Distagon, the Sonar, the Planner. All of those are lens formulas that size has patented and has developed over decades of lens research and and if sony wants to use those uh, those formulas and those coatings for the lenses they can because they have a partnership but they have to brand the lenses 
as Sony size and they have to put the size badge on them. Whereas the G lenses are Sony's sort of high-end lenses made only by Sony and the GM is supposed to take that a step a step further even more, right? So these are the 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 hallmark features that Sony is touting for the GM line are 11 aperture blades, circular bokeh balls, outstanding sharpness and and yeah, that that the nano whatever coating whatever they call it, but it's supposed to be similar to the T-Star coating but not quite as good. And and that's those are the main differences really. Like if it uses 11 aperture blades and all that, people thought, well, that's a GM lens. It has an aperture ring, it has that, that's a GM lens. Well, <laughs> not anymore. Wrong. <laughs> so, so this is where it, it all gets kind of thrown out the window, you know? Right. And it's at the end of the day, it's just marketing and companies try to sell their products however they want and however they can. And if they can get away with renaming stuff and changing stuff up, they're going to do it. And it, it's really not worth it to focus so intensely on the details. Well, well, it screwed up even the best of us. Yeah. It, it screwed up even <laughs> yeah. the best of us. Like our good friend there, Steve Huff, he, it, you know, he, he seems to have gotten that wrong in his, in his two-day full review. Yeah, to be fair, there's really not any public information to go off on. Okay, that's true. Maybe he talked to some Sony representative when, when he was loaned the lens. Maybe the Sony representative that talked to him wasn't even fully informed himself, so... We, we just don't know. Could be. Either way, it looks like a solid lens. It's expensive at 1500 US dollars. Um, and it I don't know where, if there's any, like it's really hard to justify that against the, the impeccable 55 millimeter that Sony Zeiss has been famous for. Like we both have the lens right, Alvaro, and it's, um, right. it's a gem. It's a, it for, for 700 or what is it? 800 or 900 us dollars. Like it's, it's one of, um, DxO marks, like best lenses ever released, like ever, ever. Or am I wrong by saying that? Optically it is by far the best lens that I have ever shot with like period. No doubt about it. Yeah. It, it's phenomenal. Right. So the, the the F1.4 has got a lot to overcome in order to justify like an 800 or or 600 US dollar you know premium. I'm not sure if an aperture ring and 11 aperture blades are enough to justify it, especially if the optical quality isn't as good. But hey, we'll see. Like we don't actually have any true heads-on reviews yet. So yeah, for now it's way too soon. All we have are these super hyped uh, posts that a few photographers have already posted and they are way over over the moon with the lens they're super enthusiastic about it they love it and uh, <laughs> i am just not not convinced that it's going to be that much of a difference like i mean at the end of the day a lens can only be so sharp and i really don't think you can get significantly more sharpness than the 55 sonar already gives you and ironically enough if this lens is supposed to be optimized for bokeh well the 55 lens has probably the best bokeh out of all fe lenses uh, until the gm were released so super 3d yeah the the point of these one f1.4 lenses is to take out any sort of criticism that people direct at sony for not having fast enough and pro enough lenses in their lineup like now they have the complete lineup they have the 35 the 50 and the 85. You could say that they're missing a 24, something like that. But what we have already is good enough, I would say. So for you guys, it's not bothersome that they've released a third 50 mil, but they still don't have a 135 prime? <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wasn't expecting this lens at all, especially because the 55 F1.8 is already so good. 
Right. And see, that's where for, for me as someone on the outside looking into the Sony system, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me, but I can see the posts on, you know, social media and Reddit and all these places crying out for certain focal lengths that people perceive as a gap in the current Sony lens lineup. And apparently Sony is not seeing those posts because instead of addressing those gaps, they're putting out alternative lenses in existing focal lengths. And right. this one is particularly baffling to me because like you guys are saying, the 55 is like one of the only lenses that everyone seems to agree is essentially flawless for what it is. And yet that's the one they're putting out a competitor to. At a, like it just it, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, I find it very confusing as a business move, right? It's, it's just a strange, why of all possible lenses you could have made, this is the one. It's just, it's strange. Maybe September, like realistically, we are three, two months away from September and that change that, you know, could come out, but you're right. Yeah, you're right. But it's not even the first time that it happens because it happened again with the 85s, like size release the bodies, which is an amazing lens. And a couple of months, a couple months later, Sony came out with the 85 GM. So this is it, it. I think they need to be more coordinated in, in releasing uh, like complementary lenses, like instead of repeating focal lengths time and time again. That's just it. It feels it feels uncoordinated. Yeah. It looks awkward. Like one person is just like, ha lens. And then the other person's like, oh, yeah, we were working on that. Also, here's our version. And like choice is good. Right. And right. There's no problem with having choice in the system. But because these are native lenses to in my mind, the prime responsibility of the manufacturer in their native lens lineup is to cover all the gaps. You know, exactly. Like third parties give your nuanced versions and the super fast or the super sharp or the cat or elephant eyeball bokeh or whatever it is Josh is after. Let them do that. But the, the you know, the native manufacturer's job is to make sure that their core system right. is complete. And I don't think that Sony's done a terrific job yet of of making that the case for the E-mount. So is it 135 the, the answer? Like what would make it complete? Well, again, I'm an outsider, but I see a lot of people clamoring for a 135. I'm not sure what you guys have on the wide end in terms of primes. Um, yeah, one f4 lens. It's not great. So you know there are there are some gaps there. I, I don't think that they're critical. I mean, Alvaro said you know you're you're probably fine with everything that you've got now, especially with the 85. Do you really need a 135? You know, right. questionable. I personally happen to love the 135 look. So for me, if I were shooting Sony, that would be a lens that I would actively miss. But, you know, it's not like it's necessary, but that's, you know, it's not the point. Your customers are asking for it. Yeah, but there's some context here that I think is worth uh, pointing out. And and first, there's the age, the overall age of the system. This is still relatively uh, a very young system. Yeah. And they've been kind of banking on that. They've been releasing lenses at an incredible pace and... I guess you could still say that it's a it's a young system, so it's understandable to a point that there are some missing focal lengths from the from the overall lineup. Uh, but that argument is going to lose strength over time, and I think we're nearing the point where it's becoming a harder and harder sell to say, "Hey, but we just only started uh, three three years ago." So I think. We're reaching the point where the excuse is kind of wearing thin a little bit. Well, the E-mount, the E-mount launched with the next five yeah. in 2010. The full frame, I mean, full frame E-mount. Oh, full frame E-mount. Uh, that's the, the A7. Yeah, the original A7 is the first right, right, right. Uh, yep. full frame. And that was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So that's that. That's the point. It's still a fairly young system. 
and they've covered a, a great distance in, in that short time, relatively speaking. But uh, there's also the fact that Sony also has the A-mount system, and they've emphasized that the A-mount lenses are compatible with E-mount cameras, uh, with the use of adapters, and Sony makes their own adapters, especially the, the more expensive one, the LA-BA4, I think is is called, that has its own autofocus system and it performs really well with all A-mount lenses because it, it kind of takes over AF from the camera body. Right. So it, it just operates independently and it's going to work with any A-mount lens that you stick on there. Yeah. And kind of tying in with what you said about a 135 lens, the the only 135mm f1.8 lens in the world that I'm that I'm aware of with autofocus is the one for the Sony A-mount system. That is clearly the system seller lens for the A-mount. And Sony, I think, they are comfortable saying, if you need a 135 lens, we have the best one in the world. So you can just adapt that one and use it until we come up with a native version. Yeah, and that's a fair play, I think. It's just... Fair play. Yeah. yeah if, but it's just a, it's a weird answer to the question, right? Like if your customer says, I'd like a 135, and you go, well... Here's one for a parallel system. You need an adapter, but it's a really good lens. <laughs> Enjoy. Meanwhile, you've already got two 50mm lenses. I think what you actually need is another one. Yeah, it's definitely not being very very balanced so far. But it, I, I do think it buys them a little bit more time to fill in the gaps. And that's what they're doing, basically. We, we need to knock Marius off of his little high horse here as a Fuji <laughs> owner. <laughs> This is annoying already. I want to get into the peanut gallery. <laughs> it's a really My good turn. seat, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> so flip it over. We're, let's let's talk about the Fuji announcements because there's like arguably bigger announcements there. Okay, so Fuji uh, revealed its XT2, which um, was pretty widely expected to show up. Um, so you've got the XT2 body. Um, they also announced some other things. We may as well just lay them all out and then go through them. Um, one of the other items was their sort of top-end um, flash gun, which is called the EF-X500. And then they also updated um, the lens roadmap, which is a really nice resource that uh, that Fuji, and I think even Sony has one of these as well. It's, a, it's kind of like a chart that shows you what lenses they're working on next and when they estimate to be released, uh, things like that. So, right. um, Olympus has one too. Yeah, exactly. It's, I think it's a very good thing that manufacturers do. Um, but anyways, Fuji updated theirs, and now we know that there is a 23mm f2 a 50mm f2 and an 80mm f2.8 macro lens incoming. Uh, the first two of those are basically going to be siblings to the existing 35mm f2. Um, one of the things that, that sets these apart is, first of all, they are very compact. Uh, they are also extremely fast in terms of their autofocusing, and they are all weather-resistant, which the um, initial set of 35 and 23mm lenses are not. Right. Um, and the 80 mil is an interesting one. That one, I, you know, it's, it's, I think, the least expected. There were a lot of rumors about the 23 and the 50, but the 80 is a little more left field. Um, it also comes with optical image stabilization. And uh, I think, I think it's going to be a very exciting lens. The, the 60 mil macro uh, was one of the very, very first lenses released for the um, X series system. And it's a very frustrating lens because optically it's, it's beautiful. Um, However, the autofocus is very, very hesitant and very, very slow. 
Um, so just having a, you know, a, a slightly newer macro lens in the system, I think is going to make a lot of people very happy. Well, I think that sucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, really. Because here I am trying to complain about everything you just said, but it all sounds so awesome. And I'm, I'm super jealous about how Fuji is really planning their, their lens lineup and they have by now a fully mature system and they've released what I consider to be the most compelling mirrorless body in, in, in a long time in the X-T2. So I, I am jealous, man. Yeah. Yeah, the X-T2 is looking like a very, um, a very satisfying camera. It, it ticks basically all the boxes that people have been asking for, except for the one that I think Fuji is never going to tick, which is to have in-body image stabilization. Right. Uh, they, you know, whether or not it's a good thing is kind of irrelevant at this stage because they've committed to keeping the stabilization in the lenses. And I think we've we've spoken before on the show about how um, a lot of that has to do with the way that they've actually designed their uh, lens mount. Um, it, it does not allow them to, um, it, it, basically they don't have room to put in the kind of in-body stabilization systems that the rest of the manufacturers are doing. Right. Um, the official reasoning is actually not that, um, obviously, I mean, they can't say that, but the, the official reasoning from Fuji is that they um, did experiment with it and they did not want to compromise the image quality because of the slight um, uh, inconsistency in the plane of the sensor versus the lens when you move it to stabilize. Uh, they found that that was impacting the final image in a way that they weren't comfortable with, and so they did not move forward with the technology. Right. But that's also yeah, it's clearly not working for everybody else. Yeah, it's again, it's that's just the <laughs> that's the official word on it. Personally, it's not something that bothers me, but I know that it is something that a lot of people who are considering the X system um, look at as 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 a deal breaker. Actually, you know, they they really need their tilty screen, which they've got on the XT two. Uh, you know, they had it on the XT one as well, um, but just. Is it a touchscreen? It is not a touchscreen, as far as I know. It is. Ouch. Uh, it is just the standard. Who cares? You guys like touchscreens? I don't care, but um, yeah, me neither. They're garbage. <laughs> they're like so tiny, and they're like, they're you know, like you press your finger against them. Like I, n- I've never used the M5 Mark II touchscreen ever, except to turn it off. Wow, I use it all the time. Yeah. Well, in any event, it's not a touchscreen. Um, it is, however, a a, a screen that articulates um, not quite as extensively as the uh, Pentax K1, and it's like freaky. I don't even know what that mechanism is called, but basically, you can tilt it vertically and horizontally on one axis, so you've got you know a fair bit of uh, of range there. Um, but I mean, the headlining feature is that they've taken the the really good X-Trans 3 sensor that debuted in the X-Pro2 and they've moved it into the X-T2 body. They've given it a, uh, a an even faster autofocus system. And it's actually not so much the speed as the tracking accuracy that they've worked very hard on. And what I like is that they've... Um, in the firmware for the X-T2, and this is something that they're going to bring to the X-Pro2 in October in a firmware update, um, they've developed a system that allows you to basically tailor the performance of continuous autofocus the same way that you can on high-end Nikon and Canon bodies, you know, the 1DXs of the world and things like that, where you're able to basically tell the continuous autofocus, my target is going to be moving mostly horizontally, not so much there, uh, you know, don't focus on new things coming into the frame, just lock on there or whatever. Like you, you have fine grain control over how it tracks things. And right. I think that's fantastic because this is 
Fuji's play for uh, you know, it's the it's the action camera, I suppose, in their in their lineup. Um, you know, on paper, especially in terms of image quality, you're going to get exactly the same thing out of the X-T2 as you can out of the X-Pro2. Um, but a combination of this autofocus system and the ergonomics are going to potentially make the X-T2 a better fit for people who are shooting sports or uh, wildlife or things like that. Right. It really feels like the naming, the names should be reversed between both cameras. Agreed. It's a bit of a strange nomenclature. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's something that um, to them makes sense because, uh, first of all, the X-Pro2 remains the flagship in terms of cost. And uh, I feel like their their main, um, what, what they lean on there is the presence of the optical um, viewfinder. Right. I think that for them, that is really the defining characteristic of what makes the Pro series pro and what makes the XT series a you know very very capable but ultimately different kind of flagship. Um, but there's there's a lot of very nice commentary going around the internet right now. People are basically um, stating that it's no longer the case that the um, it's almost like Fuji's developing two parallel um, flagship lines. Like they're really not. Um, it's one is not subordinate to the other, despite the fact that the pricing is different. Personally, I would have just priced them the same, yeah. quite frankly, and mm-hmm. we may actually see mm-hmm. pricing adjustments that bring the two in line. Um, but at this point, if you're looking to buy a Fuji camera uh, and it's a flagship that you're after, you're basically just choosing, do I prefer the SLR styling? Um, you know, Do I want an optical viewfinder or do I prefer a tilty screen? Right. Um, and of course, am I going to be very interested in the video capabilities? Right. It's still, for what it's worth, I still think the X-T2 is overall the better camera. I, I can't help but feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I I tend to agree with you. It's certainly the more um, generally beneficial camera. I think most people who are buying into the system and want to do so at the top level should be buying the X-T2. Yeah. Um, and that's... You know, that's, that's I think, reasonable, and I think that's what Fuji is expecting as well. Um, to them, it's just uh, part of what built this system for them was the X-Pro form factor. So there's a lot of love for it, and there are a lot of people who swear by it and who do not want to buy a Leica but want a similar um, rangefinder-style experience when they're shooting. You know, they don't like having the viewfinder in the middle of the camera. They like it off to the side. Uh, you know, all sorts of little ergonomic details, but I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. Um, if you're if you're just talking raw capabilities and specifications, uh, it it is the XT2 that that probably takes the uh, takes the lead for most people's needs. Yeah, as an as an outsider, the feeling I get is that the X Pro Two is the camera that Fuji wants to make, like is the camera that they feel is the most true to their vision of what a, a really good camera should be. Yeah. But the X-T2 is what the market asks for and what, what gives them the cells they need to keep the system going. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to, to look at it. And I think uh, probably they, they would admit to as much. You know, the, Their heart is sort of behind the X-Pro2, but they, they know that the X-T2 is really their, their main right. uh, seller. So tell us a little bit more about those lenses because they look amazing. And if the, the same differences that we saw on the 35 millimeter lenses play out here, I think they're going to be awesome. 
Well, I, so if you guys recall when I was doing my review of the X-Pro2 back before it was released, I was doing it with the 35mm F2, which was new at the time. And that particular pairing is just, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so good. It's so quick. It's very responsive and it's very light, which I appreciated. So essentially these two lenses, the, the 23 and the 50mm F2s, are going to uh, are going to be companions to that lens. Um, in the case of the twenty three, it's another one of those situations where Fuji has an existing lens at that focal length, um, and it's in fact a faster lens in terms of aperture. It's uh, it's an f one point four. I was shooting with it on my trip all all uh, last week and everything like that. Um, but this one is is giving up a little bit of that aperture speed for autofocus speed for size. And uh, for weather resistance, which I think is a really great trade-off. And quite frankly, especially as a go-to travel lens that stays glued on the camera body, I would much, much rather have this 23mm f2 than its 1.4 right. equivalent because that's a big lens. Like it's it's not, you know, DSLR level big lens, but it's a heavy lens for the system. And the, uh, you know, while it is beautiful to be able to get that nice, uh, look that you get at f1.4 i would rather have much more confident autofocus and be able to take it out uh and and know that it's a weather sealed system especially for travel that to me is much more important yeah it's kind of weird that the f1.4 lenses which are supposed to be the higher end uh, models they don't have the weather sealing whereas the cheaper smaller lighter uh and and slower lenses they do have the weather sealing do you think is is it any likely that we're going to see sort of Mark II versions of the f one point four lenses in Fuji's lineup? That's a very interesting question because it would mean the very first Mark II of any of their lenses. Um, so I'm not sure how they would feel about doing that. I mean, the it's it's important to note that the thirty five, the original one point four, and the twenty three are again lenses that came out really early in the X series history. Um, so that was right. before they had any weather resistant lenses. I don't remember which the first one in the system was. I think it might've been the, uh, the 10 to 24 zoom. Um, but I, I could be wrong either way. It's it, weather resistance on the lenses is something that they added, um, later. So yes, it would have been great if the top end, um, you know, optically the top end models are also weather resistant, but I think that at this stage they were more interested in providing alternatives than outright uh, replacements. And the fact that they're right. more affordable is terrific because it means that it's a system that remains very accessible to um, new people coming in. Yes, the body that itself is expensive. You know, I mean, an X Pro Two, even the XT Two, is not a cheap mirrorless body. You know, it's it's retailing for sixteen hundred US dollars. The X Pro Two is now at seventeen hundred US dollars. Like these are. Uh, these are very expensive, and we we talked about that um, on an episode recently, actually, and whether or not that's justified. But the point is, you spend a lot of money on the body, but then you're not actually spending that much on the lenses, especially if you're going for this new generation of them. Right. Um, you know, I, I would expect that the uh, the prices for the 23 and the 50 are probably going to be in a similar ballpark to the 35 f2, which I think is retailing for like 350 or something like that. Maybe even that's amazing. 400. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a price that is uh, once you've shot with the lens, realizing that you can get it for that money is uh, it feels like a steal. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It kind of reminds me of the whole situation with Olympus and their 
really small primes, the you know the line of f one point eight primes that they have, except that those are not weather sealed. Right. But it's sort of like the same approach to have really small, affordable, nice primes that you can put on your camera, and they don't cost a fortune. And basically, anybody that can afford the camera can afford those lenses too. Yeah, and I think that's a very important thing for a camera system in general to have. Uh, you know, you, you don't really want to buy into it and then feel a little bit trapped because all of the lens options that you're tempted by are obscenely expensive. Yeah. You know, you want to have those professional options if you're if you're a professional or if you, you know, are, are looking at this as a, something to grow into. Um, but if you're starting out and you're, you, you're looking for a variety of focal lengths, but you don't necessarily want to shell out huge money, it's just nice to have that. It's, it's sort of comforting. Yeah, and it would, it would have made sense to start with these lenses instead of the more expensive ones. But Fuji didn't do it and Sony didn't do it either and still hasn't done it, by the way. Yeah. So that's something that kind of I don't really understand why they decided to go the way they did. But yeah, that's that's... I think what it is. I think the reason is that they had to first of all wow people with the first series of lenses and the initial like the 23 and the 35 1.4s are um a lot of people uh, will comment that there's you know something magical about the way that they render things and without delving into that kind of subjective analysis the point is that those lenses make a really good first impression to someone who was coming into the Fuji system at that time right and so it's something that they may have been able to at the time make an f2 equivalent but they probably said you know what rather than doing that now why don't we just prove to people that these mirrorless systems can match or exceed the optical quality that they're used to from their dslrs and then we can pad out the lineup over time uh you know to give people more practical alternatives to some of these lenses or it might have been a, a case of just technology and learning i mean they you know they they get better each lens that they make you know the 16 is a lot better than the 14 and so on yeah in the case of fuji it makes sense because even going for the fast aperture and really high quality they still retain a size advantage over dslrs right uh, in the case of sony i'm not so sure about that because we've we're now seeing that the latest sony sony lenses are pretty big and in some cases even bigger than similar lenses for canon or nikon so yeah it's all a little bit uh, difficult to navigate sometimes. Yeah, it can be. But I, I do like that they've been, um, I think, very wise in terms of um, what they built into the system early on and then the way that they've been expanding it. Um, you know, it just it's it seemed like a very uh, comfortable growth. And as someone who uh, is in the Fuji system, uh, one of the things that was very nice was going from the uh, X-Trans 2 sensor to the X-Trans 3 and realizing that all of the lenses, all the way back to the first ones, were out-resolving their initial sensor by a large margin. Right. So it's not like one of those cases where those lenses are now no longer operating at peak performance. Like, we have not yet seen where they peak, and that's really cool. Uh, you know, that's something that that feels very reassuring as someone in the system because it means that, you know, I'm, I'm buying a lens and it really is one of, you know, that everyone says... Uh, what is it, date cameras marry lenses? <laughs> that's a good one. I hadn't heard that one before. Okay, well, yeah, that's... Anyway, the, the point is that I think that Fuji is demonstrating why that is the case because, um, you know, especially for those of us who have tried both generations of sensor and seen the improvements with the same lens, it's kind of like getting a brand new piece of glass when you get 
the new camera body. And that's pretty cool. I mean, that, that feels, uh, it's the kind of thing that builds brand loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I expect that's, I'm not, by the way, claiming that this is unique to Fuji or anything like that. I mean, it's certainly the case with all of these high-end Sony lenses right now. I expect that as the bodies will continue to improve, you'll continue to get more and more um, visual acuity out of them. And, you know, really, it'll take some time to to reach their, uh, the, the limits of what they can resolve. I think in general, lens design has been good enough to out resolve most digital sensors for quite a while because yeah. we're seeing it on in the Canon world with the 5DSR, which is a 50 megapixel camera, and every single L lens from Canon, even those that are 20 years old, they still comfortably resolve all 50 megapixels. So yeah. I think lens design is. It is kind of an art form that was mastered a long time ago. And yeah, we're making incremental improvements and small uh, innovations that improve bokeh or whatever. But the basics, uh, we got them right a long time ago. Yeah, and I think what's improving now in like the the most tangible things are uh, practical things like weather resistance. We can build that in now and it's, you know, doesn't add to the weight. How do we take the whole thing, keep the same optical quality, but make it smaller? How do we put in image stabilization? You know, it's all these sorts of things that are more conveniences than uh, things that affect the raw optical design of these lenses. And that's pretty neat because, like you said, it's it means that we've, uh, you know, we've reached a certain point where um, right now the level of our optical design is in it's it's ahead of our cameras. Yeah. So it's good. <sighs> Welcome back, Josh. I'm, I'm still here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> gotta say, lamest peanut gallery ever. I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Fuji's got all the answers. Well, I don't know about that, but they do certainly uh, try. I was going to say, the one thing that Fuji will never, ever check off either is that big old full frame sensor thing. That's true. That's true. And yeah. not that it, yeah, the argument can be made that it doesn't matter anymore, but to a lot of people, it matters. So, I like, it just... Yeah, I mean, if you compare the X-T2 with the A7 II, for example, they both have 24 megapixel sensors. So the difference there is fairly small. But then you realize that by by going to a higher density sensor on the full frame camera, you can get resolutions of 50 megapixels like we've seen in the 5DSR from Canon. And that's where the leap really, really occurs. Right, right. Yeah, so... If I could have the the full like the XT2 as a camera body looks looks phenomenal as a camera body, so yeah. There's my peanut gallery. It's all I've got, guys. Yeah, I mean, I, you're not <laughs> alone on that front. There's a lot of people who've been demanding that Fuji go full frame and you know make a full frame camera. And yeah, that's a stupid demand. I mean, I don't think. I just think that there's uh, honestly, it's kind of admirable to them that they have made a commitment to this format and that they're making the best of it. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I used to shoot full frame, so I, I understand the appeal and everything like that. But um, when I actually stop and I, I sort of look past the the heady fumes of gear lust and all of that good stuff and i look right. at my actual needs as a photographer and what i need to deliver the imagery that people pay me to do i the, the full frame advantage kind of disappears 
um, especially in the face of basic things like uh, the ergonomics or how well the files yeah. um, operate in post-production or what I think of the lens ecosystem or, you know, like there's there's so many other things that I've found are more important on a day-to-day basis. And so when I'm now looking at cameras, I find that the sensor size is like, it's less and less important to consideration. And that's why even, you know, thinking forward to Photokina, uh, we're, we're anticipating that um, Olympus is probably going to give us some hints about what the next Olympus flagship is going to be like and therefore what the next generation right. of, you know, micro four thirds cameras is going to be like. And I'm genuinely excited for it. I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not looking at it and going, I would never choose one of those cameras because now I've got a camera with a bigger sensor and I could never go back. Like, I, I'm no longer thinking that way. Um, because I, I've, you know, I've shot with both. I know that you can get great images out of both sensors. And I think there's more factors that are more important than that. Right. For what it's worth, I think Fuji got it right. I think the APS-C sensor size is the absolute sweet spot between performance and size. Not only of the camera, of course, but the lenses, which are the main Backstabber. thing. You, yeah, at the end of the day, you carry one camera body, but you carry three, four, five lenses. And it's the lenses that made up most of the bulk, right? Traitor. Yeah. And yeah, and it's true. Yeah, it is. And uh, I can't help but but feel that the times that I've traveled with the A7 II and my my full set of lenses, it really is a, a big and heavy system. Despite being mirrorless, it really is big and heavy. And the the tipping point probably for Fuji when they were designing which size to go with is that there are way more enthusiasts out there than there are professionals. And it makes a lot more sense for an enthusiast to go with an APS-C system than it does to go with a full-frame system. Absolutely, yeah. So I think they played their cards to perfection, and I think they're now in a position where they are clearly the dominant player in the APS-C segment. And also, when competing against smaller uh, sensors like Micro Four Thirds, I think everything that is smaller than full-frame, Fuji has a very good position right now. Yeah, they do. And and I think that that's where I'm most curious to see what Olympus is doing, because ultimately it's those two that are that are competing in that space most enthusiastically. Um, and Olympus can boast even smaller system size and, uh, you know, the excellent, excellent stabilization um, in the body. And now recently the, the super cool uh, paired stabilization that, you know, works in concert between lens and body. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's going to be quite a, uh, quite a decision to make, especially if the next EM bodies are a significant leap forward from, uh, right. from this generation. So, so let's use this as a segue to the next topic, because I have a newfound opinion, I think on, uh, travel cameras. Okay. And you talked about traveling with the a7 II. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I, I like, I, I'm obsessed right now with the whole full frame dynamic range thing but but I but I will admit that I would have loved to have a smaller camera that wasn't so darn I don't know even even the A7 II is still annoyingly big when traveling through Europe or, or anywhere so I yeah there's my newfound opinion you've got got that part out of me too um I would have liked to have a smaller camera when we tra- when we traveled there segue done but do you mean a smaller camera or, or a smaller system overall? Because for me, the problem are the lenses. Yeah, I, well, either. I guess both. What I would have liked was a smaller camera with a zoom lens. 
so exactly what I didn't have, right. you know, exactly opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you did have it, only you sold it. I sold it. You had it. the yeah, yeah. 12 to 40. Yeah, it was perfect. Looking back at it, I think that's probably the the best travel skip combination that I've ever had in my hands at one point or another. Yeah, probably. Uh, an EM5 Mark II and a 12 to 40 millimeter zoom. Solid, solid travel combination right there. Um, would I buy it just to travel? No, I don't think I would. But if that, if you're a travel photographer and all you're looking for are kind of, uh, you know, travel type shots, solid combination Yeah, and cheap, like in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? That's where the pen F comes back into the, the equation too. I, I don't know why my mind is on that camera, but it's just, I keep looking at it. <laughs> I saw one in the wild, one out of three weeks of traveling. We saw one of them. I have never so, seen one in the wild. Yeah. I thought Not it was, I, 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 it's one of those situations where the lady was like, she pulled it out and I was like, Whoa, that lady knows what she's doing. <laughs> you know, she's got right. awesome gear. She's clearly an expert. Yeah. <laughs> She also shot with a 12 to 40 F2.8, like a pro lens there. So, so she was like over the moon good. Oh, she definitely knew what she was doing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that combo, that combo just seems like such a comfortable travel setup and, you know, quite flexible for one lens, one body and compact. It is pretty good. Yeah. It but is. if you're going to go with a zoom lens, like the 2040 F4 that I own is already not that big. I mean, if I, if I travel with just that lens then size and weight, they really are fine. I, I wouldn't complain about that at all. Hmm. I had the 55 on my, on my A7 II for the last three weeks. Hardly put the other two on and still was annoyed with the size. It was just, not size, I, I don't know. I just wasn't, when I brought that camera with me, it was like, ah, oh, this is just so uninspirational. Like I, maybe that's the camera design to begin with. It was like, all right, I'm really tired of trying to shoot the postcard shot. Give me my iPhone. Let me shoot live photos. You really need to start shooting film, Josh. If maybe. you want inspiration, that's where it's at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hashtag shot with film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, my favorite shots from our entire trip with were, were, were with my iPhone. So um, I don't know. Maybe I need to get one of those i don't know well maybe i should get one of those fuji instax or what are they called insta like those insta film photo right if you're talking about the the printer it's uh it is the instax i mean the whole family of products is called instax um okay i should get one of those that's nice that'd be sweet maybe i can win you one i'm going to an event on uh, thursday there's a canadian launch here um so i get to play with one and hopefully i will yeah there's a contest or something so if i win it then That'll be like our candid printer. We can <laughs> send it back and forth and uh, play with it. I'm game. So yeah, like it, I mean, in the end of the day, you're right. You're you're probably right. The 24 to 70 f4 for the Sony FE mount, full frame mount. Like it's good. I'm sure it's a fantastic travel lens. But I just, I don't know. Like the Olympus is just so much fun to pull out and rip around and shoot photos with. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. Inspiration. But tell us, tell us more about the equipment stuff, because we, we kind of hinted at this uh, during an episode right. when, uh, when you were away and uh, Alvaro and I were still here and you were frantically messaging us on Slack um, about the right. revelations that had come to you regarding <laughs> your kit. So we, we should share with the audience yeah. sort of, uh, you know, we, we went through your kit before you left. So now tell us how it all worked out right. in practice. And then you like ripped me apart, ripped me apart when I was off the air. Thanks, guys. We were Threw very me right fair. under the bus. We very fair. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys say, though, again, about wanting to shoot lots of portraits? There was something about that, and I didn't end up shooting as many as I thought. And when I did, I was happy to have the like the large apertures. For sure, I was happy to have them. Um, right. 
but I think looking back now, I would have liked to have, uh, I, I just, I should have gone with the zoom. And even if that meant like getting the, the G master lens beforehand, because then I have speed, like even I, let's ignore price. I think if you're going to travel, uh, Marius is going to disagree because he just traveled through Romania with prime lenses. But I just, if you're going to travel, I really think like a zoom lens is, is the better option. You know, there's, I, I didn't change lenses a lot, but I missed, I missed a fair number of shots just because I didn't want to pull out another lens for my backpack. So, right. I agree that a zoom lens for travel is perhaps the most convenient, uh, setup that you can carry. Uh, I don't agree that the GM would be a good travel lens. I think that is a lousy travel lens. Yeah. No, everybody yeah. said because it's big, right? Right. I I understand that, but like ignore ignore price, ignore whatever. Like any zoom, any any zoom would have been better than traveling with the three. I like I would have killed for a thirty five millimeter lens too, and I had a twenty five and a fifty five. I would have loved to have something in between. Right. And so like when I got to shoot a few shots with the M five Mark II, like Jacqueline used it, used that mostly. Uh, I got to shoot with that for literally like an hour on the very last day of the trip because I just, <laughs> I don't know, I pulled it out, shot around. And I just was like, I looked at Jack and I said, I'm not letting her have the, her camera back. Um, I just, <laughs> it was awesome. The little 15 millimeter Panalika lens on there. Oh, it was awesome. Um, so yeah, maybe it was just cause I was in need of new inspiration. I'm not sure what it was, but. I think the, the, the best uh, overall setup is to have most of your focal lengths covered by a zoom lens or a couple of zoom lenses, depending on how long you want to go, really, mm -hmm. or how wide you, you want to go. And then you have to choose one or at the most two primes. But I would say right. one. I would try... Like for to, travel, to, you mean? To, yeah, I would try to choose just one if at all possible. And that should be a, a fast prime mm -hmm. to use at night. 35, 50, even 85. Yeah, the 3514 would be a great option, or the 5518, but the 5518 can be a little bit too tight. It, it, it was. So it was. I, would, I would go for the 35, yeah. I really did like the focal length for, I, 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 lots of people like their street photography, you know, where they shoot photos of other people and they do people watching and so on. I'm actually more interested in architecture. Um, I don't know why I just, I'm drawn to architecture and I thought the 55 was really, really good for, um, eliminating a lot of the, the junk in the bottom of the photo. Yeah. Like junk, junk being the street, you know, um, and it gave me the a people. lot of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the trash. No, I kid, I kid. Um, you know, the 55 eliminated a lot of that and it caught me in a little tighter with, with buildings and stuff. So I got a lot of, I love, I got a, some, I got some awesome architecture shots. Like for me, I, I really, really enjoyed that portion of things. I also like the way the 85 reacted with that. Um, and the 25 would have been great. I had the 25 baddest with me and it was, it was probably a fantastic option. Um, but I, I was drawn to the architecture. So then right away I'm aiming my camera upwards. Right. And that distorts everything in the bottom third of the image. So I really got annoyed with the 25 baddest uh, throughout the trip. I think I maybe shot, I don't know, out of 2,500 photos, I maybe shot 50 with the 25. Yeah. Unfortunately, super wide angle lenses are tricky to work with. Yeah. I'm not very good at it. So that's why if you want to take a lot of architecture shots, a tilt shift lens is really the only way that you can get it, uh, that you can get it right, you know, without so much distortion. And that's right. something that we don't still have for the Sony system, unfortunately. Yeah. They are lots of fun, but they're, uh, they tend to be so expensive that it's not really the kind of lens that people right. think of as, oh, that's my travel lens and you know it's you'll get a prime lens and it'll be a tilt shift and it's like you know 
three grand or more and just doesn't feel like the kind of thing you want to have hanging off you when you're traveling around, especially since, um, I mean, architecture is where it, it works best. Um, you can probably do better if you're doing other kinds of shots. So it doesn't, doesn't make sense. They are fun though. Right. I would have loved to try a fisheye uh, on this trip. That would have been lots of fun. Um, <laughs> super wide, obviously it would have not gotten rid of the stuff in the, in the, you know, the bottom third of the street and so on. But I think it could have made for some really cool, uh, cool looking compositions. So yeah. if only there was a company that made like a tiny pocketable, very, very wide angle camera that you can just put on a stick or something and wave around. <laughs> yeah. Huh. yeah. Usually. That, you, right? Yeah. I, I wonder. Yeah. Oh. No, it's not that wide. I understand that. And you had a lot of fun. I remember with the, um, with the, wow, which, which fish I was it that you tested out for the, yeah, the uh, eight Olympus millimeter system. pro. That's the, the eight one. millimeter pro. I, and I thought that was the lens I would have loved to have. That would be like a 16 millimeter, right? Yeah. yeah. That was awesome. That, that little lens was so much fun to use when I was, uh, testing it. I still haven't reviewed it. <laughs> kind of a little late now, but I would have loved to have had, had that for Europe. That would have been sweet. Yeah, they're really right. fun for travel. It's just yeah. a wacky perspective, but for it's, sure. it's fun. And and this kind of ties in with what we were discussing before. And it I think that the ultra wide angle range is where smaller sensor systems can really go head to head with the full frame guys because it's a lot easier to keep the image tack sharp from corner to corner on a smaller sensor than it is on a full frame sensor. And Olympus has been really, really making some awesome lenses that are really wide. And uh, this is this is an area where I would almost prefer to pick up uh, an EM5 Mark II than, than the A7 II if I For wanted sure. to take a fisheye type of uh, shot, you know? Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So with that in mind, and that being said, the probably one of the, well, for sure, the most used accessory on my trip was the GoPro. Um, for sure, the most used. Granted, I like, I'm not going to, I can't imagine I'm going to end up sharing any of the videos that I shot because I you know, suck at it, <laughs> but they were, <laughs> they were lots of fun to shoot. They're very like, um, I cherish those memories the most. Uh, like, you know, if I was to like do a scale of, of the photography or the media that I shot while I was out there, the, the top ranked ones that have the most sentimental value to me would be the, uh, Apple live photos on my iPhone. Love them. I'm going to write more about right. that in the future. I, I just, ah, oh, what a fantastic medium. Anyway, the second one would be the GoPro images, uh, or GoPro videos. Uh, they were awesome. I, I love getting the, uh, just, uh, they're, they're mostly with the two of us in them, all of our little videos. So I, I'm not sure how I could possibly turn it into something that'd be cool on, on Vimeo or something like that. But anyway, yeah, but that's not what it was for, right? I no, mean, no. The point was to do it just for the two of us. And I, and that's exactly what I got. And I love it. I love the stuff that came out of there. Uh, I unfortunately haven't picked up the GoPro since we got back. So I think I'm probably still going to sell it. I don't anticipate, you know, keeping it, but it was a very, very good buy before we left. And I can't, I just could not recommend it more before, for anybody heading out on a trip like that. Okay, here's a question for you because I think that the GoPro and the iPhone um, are definitely in that realm where they're extremely satisfying and they produce the kinds of results that are maybe the most valuable to the heart. They're not necessarily the stuff that you're sharing. They're not the stuff that is going to, you know, people are going to buy prints of, but they're the things that are the most, um, they produce maybe the most valuable memories of the trip. Right. Um, which I think is, is awesome. But 
I wanted to ask, did you find yourself, uh, did you find those two competing a little bit? Because for me, um, I did not have the GoPro with me, but I didn't actually have any particular circumstance where I was filming something on my iPhone, which I did a fair bit of, and thought, ah, you know what? I really wish I had the GoPro with me instead for this. So I'm just wondering how you made that decision. Like, why was it the GoPro that you turned to for a lot of those videos instead of your iPhone? Uh, Good question. Uh, The only answer I could probably give you is because I just didn't want to shoot video on my iPhone, so I didn't even think about it. All right, fair enough. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like, I I knew that it could shoot video. I took a couple with the iPhone, um, but I wasn't all that... impressed with the, um, like the iPhone 6S doesn't have the optical image stabilization of the 6S plus, right? So the 6S plus shoots far more stabilized video handheld, right? But they both shoot more stabilized video than the GoPro Uh, handheld, but I had a gimbal, which I used and didn't use, but I worked hard to make sure and whatever. Yeah. End of the day. I just, I stuck to the GoPro for the video for 99% of it. I think I took one one with my iPhone because I didn't have the GoPro on me. Right. The other part that I wanted to do, I was trying to keep it, um, I was trying to keep the medium media per device like uniform. So the, the GoPro doesn't have any stills. It has video only. And like the iPhone doesn't have any, um, it doesn't have any like architectural shots. It has the selfies that I took with my wife in each location. And that's maybe just the perfectionist in me. Um, so that, I don't know, for managing it, organizing it. But at the end of the day, the, the GoPro was there for a specific reason, and that was video, and therefore all the video was shot on it. So Cool, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the best answer I could give you. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think that that's probably, um, you're not the only one who does that. You know, they, they keep the GoPro for the video stuff, uh, not for photos. Right. And then a lot of people are just snapping the photos on their on their phones. Um, and you know, if they have cameras, then they're, they're going to use that as well. The other, the other part about the GoPro, of course, is the, the waterproof case, which I used a lot. We were in the water. We, we were in the beach or on the beach a couple of days and, uh, at the pool a few days and jumped into the water and got a pile of cool swimming photo or videos from the two of us. So like that was, that was the other thing was the fact that I just wasn't willing to bring my iPhone with some sort of waterproof case out there. So. Yeah. And that's a lot of fun. Like I, I, Oh, so much. It's just so cool to be able to like be holding a GoPro and leap into a pool or whatever. It just doesn't get old. Yep. As it turned out, I was swimming in a couple salt water pools. And so I used, I used the three in one or the three way, whatever it's called the GoPro stick where, you know, they, they say it's, I call it a stick. Everyone says it's a selfie stick. I'll call it a pole, whatever. So you can extend it and there's a tripod built into it. So anyway, I used that and I brought it into the water and the salt got really bad. So um, I didn't like clean it off after and like rinse it off. So I actually ended up, uh, it became really squeaky the, the when I was extending it um, because I guess the salt was eating away at it. Anyway, at the end of the day, I ended up breaking that stick. So yeah. Uh, that was, uh, that was, I, I think I broke it three or four days with, at the end of the trip, <laughs> I had three or four days left. So then I had to go back to the gimbal, which was a horrible experience. I might add, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy the gimbal as much as I would have liked to. So Marius, I've been talking now for 20 minutes. It's your turn to talk about your trip because you went and you shot with primes and you were pumped about it and you liked wide angles and I hated wide, wide angles. So let's flip flop. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to um, I wanted to hear Alvaro's commentary before I dive into mine because I asked you a bunch of oh. questions, but he's been quiet, so I just want to make sure we're not. Oh, I just thought maybe he fell asleep. It's, it's possible. He was you know... almost almost. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Don't worry. But what about my commentary about what 
I just about Josh's trip. I wanted to get more questions. <laughs> he had fallen asleep. Guess not. No, I think he. I, I think he. I, I agree with everything he said. I mean, the. I, I'm just not a big GoPro guy. I've never used one. I've never owned one. So I, I don't have much to add here, really. I. Yeah. I the only time I ever shot video uh, on a trip was on my New Year's trip to Paris and. It was it was fine. I used the A7 II for that, and 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 it was fine. But I I didn't really go super in depth into the whole video video thing. So I I don't really have experience to to know what that's like. Right on. Okay. Cool. No, just figured I'd ask. Um, Fire away. <laughs> so your turn. Yeah, my on turn on the hot seat. <laughs> Um, so my trip, I was actually surprisingly satisfied with what I brought with me. Um, I did not feel, uh, I guess, frustrated with any particular part of my kit. So, uh, we, we actually didn't go over what I brought with me. Um, but for the record, no, that's right. Yeah. I mean, for, for, I guess it's because I had less with me, I think, and, and it was, uh, less interesting, quite frankly. Um, but essentially <laughs> my, my kit was, uh, the X pro two, my 35 mil 1.4, uh, the 14 mil F 2.8. Um, and then I also had the 23 mil 1.4 on loan from Fuji for the trip because I, I was concerned that I was going to miss my... I mean, this is the first year that I'm traveling without an X100 series body um, since they, you know, since I got one, basically. You know, I no longer have one, so I thought I'm going to miss that focal length because I really enjoyed it for travel. You know, the X100 series, I, I still think, is one of the most um, compelling travel camera options out there if you don't want multiple uh, focal lengths. Anyway, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take the 23mm with me as well just to have that covered in case I am tempted. Um, and that was, that was essentially it. I mean, I had a circular polarizing filter for the, um, for the 14 mil lens. Um, and I also had a, uh, the tiny Manfrotto pixie, um, tripod, but I used that exclusively ah. with my iPhone. Uh, I, I never used it with the camera. Right. What'd you do to attach it? Uh, they actually make a mount that I, I forget the name of it. It's like this interesting thing that folds down flat. Um, and then you assemble it into a clamp that you can obviously adjust to hold your phone. And that just screws in with a standard tripod mount. Um, and there's actually a second mount on the top of it. So they make a, a light that is, uh, I, I think designed for people who are using their iPhone for, Um, like vlogging or something like that. So you basically can have the pixie, this mount holding the iPod, and then the light attached to the top of the mount. And it's this sort of all-in-one excellent system for for vlogging. Right on. Nice. Cool. Um, Anyway, yeah, I didn't have the light, but um, I did have the the, the tripod and that mount thing for the iPhone. But anyway, that was the extent of my photography kit. I mean, that was really, that was it. And Would you go to like, do you have a backpack or how'd you store all of it? Uh, yes. So this was actually the first trip where I did not check any luggage. Um, I traveled with one backpack and inside of that backpack, I had a folded day pack that, uh, was what I actually ended up taking with me on the trip. Uh, so the big backpack with all the clothes and things like that stayed, um, you know, either at a hostel or at my cottage while we were there, um, and the little bag came with me the entire time. And inside that bag, there's a, um, I have this little National Geographic pouch thing that came with some other bag that someone gave me ages and ages ago. 
Um, and it's just this tiny little padded thing that miraculously is a perfect fit for both those lenses and the camera body. It's it's really very nice. compact. So, so that lived in there, and that was like my entire camera kit. The tripod was just hanging off, you know, one of the outer straps. And uh, that was it. I mean, my backpack was empty, essentially empty for most of the days. You know, I'd have a jacket or my, right. uh, you know, a, a sweater or something like that. But uh, it was a very light way of traveling. And I, f- I found it very satisfying because it was very, uh, I never really felt very burdened um, yeah. by equipment or by, you know, worrying that I've got luggage to take from here to there or anything like that. It was all just. Yeah. Or like getting stuck in a Spanish airport because of lost baggage. Yeah. <laughs> you're smart. <laughs> Man, those Spanish guys. Yeah, they're the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> I don't understand how they survive there. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so I did not have to deal with anything like that, and it was a very satisfying way to travel. I do recommend it. Um, uh, you know, the, you read a lot of articles about people traveling light, and they tell you that, you know, you need a lot less than you think you do, and um, I didn't necessarily believe it until I actually tried it out, but uh, it, it is the case. You you can really travel very light. Um, you know, I mean, one backpack for two weeks, right. I had plenty of clothes. Um, so uh, that's good. But anyway, on the camera front, I, I was uh, a little surprised um, by two things. First of all, I shot, mm, I'm going to say about a thousand images on the X-Pro2 and about 500 images on my iPhone. Wow. That's a good, good variation anyway. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. it's a pretty uh, average spread for me. Um and what was interesting to me about the um, Fuji side of things is that I actually had the 14 mil lens on for the vast majority of the trip. Yeah, that's surprising. So that's like 21 millimeters. Yeah, I, I honestly, Jeepers. The, I think probably if I were to look at the statistics, at least 70% of the images that I shot out of that thousand are um, on the 14 mil. And after that is probably the 35 mil and the least used lens was the 23 um, which is basically uh, almost exactly backwards from what I was expecting. I thought the 23 would yeah. be on there all the time, the 35 would be on there more often, and then the 14 mil would be there for the occasional um, shot. And it, for, I have no idea why. It just worked out that whenever I was looking for my shot, I wanted that that wide angle look. Well, it was a very scenic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. I mean, it it was it was very context based because I was not really traveling through cities and things like that. I was in the wilderness. I was doing um, landscape shooting, and so the wide angle was was more expected. But uh, either way, it's funny for me because I had um, I I was one of the people who, like Josh, um, found it extremely difficult to shoot with wide angle lenses because I had. Uh, spent a lot of time shooting telephoto and I just, you know, I, I remember shooting the first wide angle lens. Um, I think it was the 10 to 24 zoom, actually the, the Fuji one. That was my first experience with a wide angle lens and I had no idea how to use it. It just, it was bizarre. I felt like I was not getting anything satisfying out of it. Um, but somehow over time, I just got more used to the wide angle perspective. And I guess now I like it. Uh, it was it was very very satisfying, and I'm very happy with a lot of the shots that I got. So it's not even a matter of you know laziness or something because I didn't want to switch lenses. I I really wanted to shoot with the 14. Yeah, that's great. Solid. That's I'm jealous. I really I really am. Like because I look at my Battis and I like the 25 mil, and I I I just love the way it looks, and I love the way it looks like and feels on the camera. But then I shoot with it, and I just get so annoyed. Yeah. 
because I suck basically. <laughs> yeah, but, no. And I, and that's what I say. <laughs> I, I was right there with you. Like I was getting these shots and I was like, man, this is garbage. I thought I was a better photographer than this. <laughs> and exactly. it just takes, you gotta push through it. You got to push through it. It's just like anything yeah. else. Eventually it, it clicks and it makes more sense. Um, yeah. For what it's worth, I, I very rarely see myself using the zoom all the way down to at, at 24 millimeters. I always, uh, all basically over 90% of my shots are at least 28 to 30 yeah, or, or, or over that. So it, it's just, I don't feel comfortable going that wide. Yeah. And that's, that's fair. And I think that it is very case dependent because I, I guarantee that if I were spending most of my time in a city, it would have been the 23 mil. Yeah. That would have been yeah, on definitely. there all the time, right, 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 right? Or the 35. But because I was out in the middle of nowhere and I was trying to capture these, these unexpectedly picturesque landscapes, um, I was, you know, I, I just wanted to encompass all of it. And um, actually, the, I think the part that I'm uh, happiest about is the fact that I brought that circular polarizer with me because that thing was a godsend um, with all those landscapes, especially the ones where there was water or where I wanted to really make sure the details in the clouds were were brought out. Um, it just, oh, it saved my ass a lot um, in, in trickier lighting situations. Um and it just, you know, the the side effect of a circular polarizer is that it also, uh, you know, besides cutting glare, as a result, you get these really, really detailed um, greens and the cloud edges yeah. become more defined. And it just, it's a very, very useful tool um, for landscape stuff. So I'm, I'm so glad that I left it on there. Um, it stayed on basically the whole time. Whenever I was shooting with the 14 mil, that was, that was firmly <laughs> attached. Um, so that was that was good. But basically, that, that was the entirety of my kit. I didn't have anything else with me. Um, the only thing that I wanted to reflect on with you guys is how freaking amazing the iPhone is as <laughs> a as a travel imagery companion. Oh, it is the best. It could very well be the very best travel camera in the world. Absolutely. It is so satisfying and so versatile in in how many um, tools you have at your disposal to capture memories and how many interesting ways you can immediately share those memories with people. And I mean, Josh, you mentioned live photos, which I am also a tremendous fan of. Um, but also for me, I don't know if you guys do this as well, but I am a total panorama nerd. Um, I will take panoramas <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. I, I just, and I love the way that they get, um, you know, they're very easy to do with the iPhone. And in almost all cases, it does a terrific job of stitching everything together. And um, I notice when I'm processing the images, uh, wherever I'm doing it, even if it's on my computer after the fact, uh, I just prefer to work with the panorama images, even if I don't do them super wide. Um, there's just so much detail like so, so much right. detail and they respond very well to a little bit of extra sharpening, a little bit of, you know, the usual recovery stuff. I mean, I cannot wait until we're getting these things in raw. It's going to be yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, Marius likes these photos, clearly. I do. Hey. I do. But I, it, like, they're just, it's, it's so cool that. Breathe, breathe. No, I can't. So enthusiastic. I do agree. They're awesome. Yeah. They're awesome. Do you guys do the panoramas too, though? Is it, is it just me that's, uh. I didn't oh, yeah. do a single yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do a single one, but you know, that's Jacqueline took some. So yes, I guess yeah. between the two yeah, of us, we have a couple. I do a lot of those with the, with the iPhone, but uh, up until recently, I kind of forgot that you can make them with the camera as well, with the A7 II <laughs> as well. 
So yeah. I started taking more of those with the camera recently, and I'm very happy with them. Like you can really get massive, massive images, and you can print them really big and frame them and hang them up on your walls at home, and that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could build a wall out of the out of the kinds of images you could print from that that resolution. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Just just today, I stitched up a 130 megapixel image. I think it was. So yeah, you have plenty of room to print. Your iMac is still recovering. <laughs> yeah, it actually brought it to its knees. Like it literally froze on me for a good 20 minutes and I couldn't do anything <sighs> except Scary. wait for it to finish stitching the the pictures together. So not ideal, not ideal, but Yeah, I know I know that feeling. My Mac does the same. So let's before we kind of hang up here, let's let's chat really quick about I'm curious about where um in the app store, are there any apps that deal with live photos, you know, like can save them or, or like, do I have to keep them in my camera roll, import them, and then they just stay on iPhoto forever? Like, I would really like to put them, uh, are there any apps that use live photos that support them? For some reason, there's been a bit of a uh, a burst of live photo related apps recently. Um, for for example, Motion Stills is um, one that was very, very popular um, recently, Google makes it actually, and it's essentially an app that that kind of does what um, a lot of people were hoping live photos would uh, would do from the start. So you can edit them, you can stabilize them very effectively, and you can save them as GIFs and video files that you can share or GIFs. Yeah, more easily. <laughs> um, Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. I'll just walk myself out. <laughs> Um, but that's that's one that I definitely recommend if you haven't played with it. It's a lot of fun. Um, and there's a new one here recently, right? Like, yeah, like actually, today. Literally, as we record this, uh, we've all signed up for a an app called uh, Swing that was released by Polaroid, and it's kind of, I guess, it's almost um, a sister thing because it's not really using live photos per se. It's basically closer to uh, Instagram's Boomerang app except um, yep. you get to control playback by tilting your phone or by just uh, you know sliding your finger across the image. So it's, it's kind of like a live photo, but you control what's going on and there's no sound. Um, but it's just, there's something about the interaction of it. And of course the app itself is, uh, I find extremely well designed. It's very, very polished. Yeah, but the interaction is where it's at, really. Yeah. It's very thoughtful, like the way you can control the animation by tilting the phone. That was impressive to see. Yeah, and the fact that you you can you know really refine what pace you want it to move at, and uh, yeah, and I noticed that they're tracking not only you know they they've got a like system. It's it's a feed almost like Instagram or something like that. But um, you can like it, and then they also track however many tilts back and forth uh, an image gets. So I suspect those numbers are going to grow very very high. Yeah, um, especially for popular accounts. So it's like they kind of mixed. What what's great about Vine and what's great about Instagram and they sort of mixed it up together and created something that tries to have the best of both and I think it it can it can definitely work I think it has a lot of potential yeah I hope it takes off uh, I mean it's 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 such a well made app um, and uh, so far so good I mean like we said it's it's literally come out today so we, yeah we uh, we won't know yet what uh, what the reaction is going to be like but we're on there so by all means look for us and follow us right by the time everybody hears this their their username of choice will be gone yeah we're early adopters for this one so. <laughs> I'm just hoping everybody 
uh, sort of migrates from Instagram to this one because here I, I did get my name as, as the username. So please, everyone, <laughs> all, all the millions of Instagram users, if, if you don't mind, come on over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, believe it or not, I still didn't get at Josh. So thanks for whoever screwed that one up. Uh, just a little too slow. Just a little too slow. I got one of those kind of names. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs>